I'm sitting here um, at a hotel in Waterloo Kitchen, Waterloo Kitchener, Ontario, right before the Kitchener Blues Festival, talking to Rick Holmstrom, who's been kind enough to sit and talk to me about his life and music. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Yeah. So um, I want to start, as I always do, at the very beginning. And, and can you tell me a little bit about where you come from and a little bit about your parents? It's probably about the farthest I could come from and for a blues or you know someone that started off playing in the blues world I came from come from Fairbanks Alaska and uh, yeah I my my father was a DJ when I was a kid so I I heard a lot of music around the house uh, but it wasn't like something where I came up a sharecropper you know in the south or anything like that I'm definitely raised on records. What kind of records? All the Beatles were around, the Stones. Uh, my dad was a big, my mom and dad were, were fans of Elvis and Chuck Berry, and they would hear me, you know, I grew, I was born in 65, so when I really started getting into records, it was probably the early 70s. So I would have Stevie Wonder records or Rolling Stones records and later Led Zeppelin records and things like that. And my dad would hear the riffs, and he'd say, you know, that's, that's a Chuck Berry thing, Rick, or that's Muddy Water, so that's Buddy Holly. And the next thing I knew, I'd have a record of Buddy Holly or Chuck Berry or M Muddy Waters. So he always gave me, instilled in this, I, early on I knew that all of these people were getting it from somewhere else, or they, at least they got inspiration, and then they twisted wow. it around. So, I mean, but... I didn't really play. I, I had a guitar. I learned some cowboy chords, and then the ones down at the end of the neck where you play at a campfire and yeah, all yeah. C, G, A, you know, open chords. And I could play a little bit, but it was just another toy in my room next to the baseball and the basketball and all that. Well, sports was a big deal for you, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I played. Well, I ran cross country in high school and I played basketball in high school and college I went to a small uh, University of Redlands out in uh, east of LA division three school I played four years of college basketball you know because I wanted to and because I was fortunate to be able to have take out huge student loans from Alaska <laughs> they had they were rolling in oil money at the time so uh but you didn't go for athletics, you actually went for journalism. Is that correct? Well, actually, I have a degree in business huh. with a minor in political science. But my last semester of college, I was playing in a band. Basketball was done for the most of that semester. And I took this professional nonfiction writing class. And the, the professor in it liked my writing and said, you know, you could do this. Uh, I had never even thought. I just took it for fun. Wow. And he he had had different people come in and guest lecture. And so he hooked me up with one of these guys who kind of gave me a start when I was 20. I, I was basically a stringer at, at the Time Life building in Westwood. Uh, just a kid, you know, just, hey, will you go to Spago and check out and see if Kirk Russell shows up or whoever it just it was ridiculous but I was, <laughs> I was 21 and the cool thing about it was I got to be part of story meetings 
and pitch stories and so if you know I, but just to just to be that age and to be able to be running around free in Hollywood a kid from Fairbanks Alaska was was fun I, but at the same time I was really into music so I was going to these clubs uh, in South Central and stuff and soaking that up and staying up really late and practicing every minute I could and then running into my writing jobs and trying to you know get a meager live living going but music won out <laughs> I wonder which would be tougher writing or music well I think they're both equal I mean I was I was lucky because I started sitting in with some people and one of them was William Clark and he took me under his wing and and immediately I went on the road and I tried doing both things for a few years and I did it but it was it was no good to, I needed to pick and my heart was in the music I knew that if I really wanted to do the writing thing I needed to go back and work at some newspapers and work my way up learn it the proper way because I hadn't studied it in right. college <clears throat> I just I had written for a long time I had I'd kept journals since I was 13 like my dad gave me a journal so something about putting the pen to paper never uh, intimidated me as a kid and as I grew up in high school and college I was I got good grades for my reports and stuff so I guess I had a skill for it do you I know you write music but mm -hmm. do you still write in yeah prose or in I do but I, I don't I haven't published anything or anything like that I, you know I, I just I I write letters I write emails I, you know, yeah, yeah. I write in a journal I have you know, like I said for a long time you know uh, but the music was too strong. The pull was too strong. The, the, I mean, the same kind, I got the same kind of feeling from playing a gig that I used to get in a gym full of people on a Saturday night in a small town. You know, when you, when that, when it's, you, it's, you've been working all year and, and you're playing against your main rival and it's, it's just it's, it's great electricity the drama of that and the physical thing about it and the the adrenaline that you get but the first time I played a gig was just in a little house uh, at, at, on, at the university in Redlands that I went to it's a party it's like a beer party I mean that's all we did we played beer parties for free for beer yeah but the feeling I got oh man the high that you would get from that so it's not a competition no no no, it's just uh, it's seeing people have fun and dance and move around and that feeling like when you get it going and the band is getting it going and you can see it in the audience and you get this accumulation of joy right. that happens, you know, that's a pretty powerful thing. And I presume that still happens on a regular basis for you. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with Mavis, yeah. I mean, it happens when we do a, a trio gigs too, obviously. But Mavis is just, I mean, she's like a, she's uh, like a galaxy unto herself. I mean, she just radiates so much energy. It's hard not to get a, a high from that too. I want to talk more about Mavis, but... I want to talk more about your childhood. So growing up in Fairbanks, what was that like? Cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you bet. Good answer. Yeah. No, it was great. I mean, I didn't know any different. 
Um, I still go up there. I was just up there a week ago. Took my family, wife and kids up there. We go up every summer, find a little spot, you know, 10 days. My family owns a, a lake cabin about 45 miles outside of town. Wow. And a freshwater lake where we water ski and swim and fish and hike. And wow. the crazy thing is now I can appreciate Alaska a lot more than I did was yeah. when I was a kid because I was into, I was into, I was, I was kind of like a city kid that grew up in the country. I mean, we were outside of town. I had to walk along up a hill. The classic story: I had to walk a mile up the hill in the snow. I really Both did. Ways. Yeah, and uh, shovel snow and chop wood and all that kind of stuff. But I had friends that hunted and fished. I never I I fished with my grandpa a little bit when I was a kid, but I lost interest in it. I was into Stevie Wonder, Billy Preston and the Rolling Stones and basketball and you know, I would go to the Air Force base or the military base on that are near Fairbanks just for the competition, just to play against the better athletes that come from other parts of the states. So if you're a basketball fan in Fairbanks, Alaska growing up, who was your team? Who become? Yeah, it was, uh, well, at first it was the C- Seattle Supersonics okay. when they had downtown Freddie Brown and Jack Sigma and all those guys. Uh, but because we didn't have a team, I could shift. So then it became, you know, it could be Pete Maravich's team or it could be the Celtics. And then later when I moved to L.A., I slowly became a Lakers fan just because I got a chance to watch Kobe Bryant as an 18, 17, 18 year old right. come up and you couldn't help but not get interested in it. So, yeah. So what was moving to LA like from, from the cold environment to? Uh, well, uh, I, I remember getting off the plane in Ontario, which is east of LA and it's, it was September and it was brutally hot and I was in my jeans and my boots and my you know, I was dressed like I, w- I did back home, like I was working construction, which is basically how I paid for school other than my student loans was working construction. And I've got into this van with these vinyl seats and no air conditioning, and I just thought, what did I do? What am I doing? I was sweating, and it's, ah. And then I get to campus, and it's all these, or a lot of, you see, it was, the University of Redlands is known for this, one part of the school it's a liberal art, liberal arts college and it's known for this part of the campus called the Johnston Center where people design their own majors so you have kind of like a a hippie element and then you have these surfers from Orange County and I didn't fit in anywhere I was the hick from the sticks so my first year was rough I didn't like it much but I was playing ball and by the end of the year, it started to get to be a little bit more fun. I thought, I can't quit. You know, I'm not going home. Because where I grew up, there were some good athletes and good ball players and stuff. And they would, a lot of them would go out to school somewhere on the, in the States or right. in, on, in the, inside, the outside yeah. and quit after a semester or a year and come back home. And I didn't want to be that guy. So I stuck it out. Yeah. Wow. But was that tough? Like, I mean, because it's a different world, right? Like, it's... Yeah, a very different world. But I started to got, 
started getting accustomed to it. And my sophomore year, I met my wife, who, you know, we were, we'd been together since 1984. Wow. Um, and so that made it a lot better. And it I moved, usually does. Yeah, I moved <laughs> off campus with a friend, you know, roommate, and I liked it better not being in a dormitory. I'm more of a, you know, I, mean, I can hang, but I, I'm the the stupidity of stupidity of it all just mm-hmm. got to me. The the hijinks and I yeah. can take that on a cer- certain when I feel like I want it. But Saturday night time. after you've done your work and everything, okay, let's go have some beers and have fun, get crazy. But every night of the week in the dormitory was just, I couldn't, I couldn't focus. And I like solitude, so. So yeah. at that, by that time, was music the main focus? Did you think this was going to be your career? No, 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 absolutely not. No, I was, <clears throat> I thought I was going to move back home and get a job and eventually po- possibly go into politics, believe it or not. Wow. You know, my dad was involved in politics up in Alaska and um, not as a politician, but as a, you know, like he produced TV spots and and uh, he worked in radio and TV. I mean, he did a lot of what you do, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or something similar anyway. Uh, so I thought maybe you know, I'll I'll go home and find something like that to do, and then maybe I'll run for, you know, le- legislature or something when I'm 30 or something like that. <laughs> Not knowing what the hell, just some <laughs> stupid kid. At least you, know? you had a plan. No, I wasn't even a plan. It was just more like, <laughs> well, that's, that sounds like I could probably do that. And um, I was a poli sci minor, so I thought I knew something about politics. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. I mean, it was. Anyway, um, but that's the way it should be, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah. And then you started playing with William Clark. Well, yeah. I mean, I I didn't start really playing guitar until my senior year of college. Uh, some friends had a band, and they were playing like surf music and garage rock type stuff, just party party music, and. Um, they kept bugging me to play. I'd pick up one of their guitars after the gig and go, dude, you play guitar. Oh, little, why don't you play with us, man? I was like, nah, nah. I mean, I didn't have any confidence that I could play. I just, I, I could pick it up and do a few things. Right. But senior year, another friend of mine talked me into joining. If, if he, he said, I'll do it if you do it, because they had lost a couple guys to graduation, this band. So we did, and he was way into blues and Chuck Berry and um, Jimmy Reed and, you know, just Muddy Waters and all kinds of stuff. And then he turned me on to the Fabulous Thunderbirds and the Tailgaters and Stevie Vaughan, and pretty soon I started digging back. This is my senior year into Albert King, and, whoa, what's he listening to? Oh, you know, Junior Parker, whatever, and... And then I was, it was off to the races. I started going to see bands in L.A. with a fake ID, me and my friend. And what do you think it was about that music that just drew you in? Um, well, I love the groove of it. I love the emotion of it. Uh, the way that I could tell a band could, could, could involve the room in, in what was going on. 
that people got a release from it, you know, because what brings people out to a bar on a Friday or Saturday night? You know, they, they just want to let off some steam. Mm-hmm. And these bands, they weren't, I mean, it's, I would see bands like the James Harmon band with Stephen Hodges, our drummer with Mavis. Yeah. He was in the band that I, the first time I snuck into a club in L.A. at the, the Lighthouse in Hermosa Beach, Hodges was on drums. Wow. Yeah. How, did you know that? I mean, how did that come about? Like, did you? I just remember watching this band, and me and my buddy got so drunk that we, we, we sat on the curb by our car for hours like went to a Denny's or something to get some food and we knew we were drunk and we just sat there and waited before we drove back out to Redlands but I I just remember thinking that was the coolest thing man you know the just the feeling of that you know the different blues grooves you know and and somebody soloing really great or somebody singing really cool like James is a great singer it's a great feeling I just and I, I, another friend of mine from Fairbanks lived in Hermosa Beach around that time. He's a basketball coach. Um, he's now the coach of Loyola Marymount University. Wow. He was the coach of the Charlotte Bobcats a few years ago. Um, and I went to that same bar, the Lighthouse, with him. We were just out for a beer or something. He's a few years older than me. And I'm, we were watching this band, and I said, Mike, man, I, I would love to do that. And he goes, well, stop talking about it and just do it. Because he knew I was playing around with the guitar and I was trying to work at the same time and I was, you know, serving. You know, I, I just too, I was too divided. Yeah. So uh, I think I just kind of started focusing in on it more and more, got with Bill Clark, and luckily he had just gotten signed. I mean, he was, he, he should have had somebody way better than me in the band but he was tough on people he was he ran through a bunch of guitar players and drummers and he drank a lot and uh but i was so hungry that i joined that band and i could take it you know Mm. because i i knew okay well i'm learning and then he could see that i was practicing really hard hey man I heard you practice into that little Walter in your room today, you know, because we play, we stayed in thin walled hotels. We could hear each other practicing, even when we weren't plugged in, you know. And and was it just about playing the blues? Like, did you think that one day that you could maybe make a decent living, or did was it just? Yeah, I think I was just so young and so dumb, I guess, and and optimistic and excited that it didn't matter to me i figured well i i got a college degree i guess if i do this for three or four years and it doesn't work out i'll figure something else out to do Um, but then as i got older then it became holy crap my friends that i went to school with are doing really well like they're starting to move up the ranks and if i let go of the music what would I do? Where would I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and did you realize that that, I mean, playing with William Clark is something else. I don't know at that point if he was um, respected as well as he is today. Well, he, would, he had just gotten signed to Alligator. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> we didn't 
lack for gigs. We were on the road constantly. But I think people have gotten a chance to listen to the number of records that he made and how strong each one of them was and what a strong personality he was on stage to... I mean, at the time, he was working his way up the ladder. Right. But he certainly is one of the more respected harmonica players. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was... He was very melodic. He would sit in his room, in his bathroom a lot of times, with a styrofoam cup around his harp to, to, so that it wouldn't bother other people. And just, he'd listen, he'd have a boom box that he had all kinds of saxophone player jazz records, and he would just work on ideas constantly. He'd hear something in some jazz record that he liked, and he'd figure it out on harp, and then later that night he'd be working on it you know at the gig and that was a really good thing for me to learn like I would start to play something with Bill maybe a, a melody line that I had learned a few days ago and maybe I'd played it the night before and he would just start blowing right over top of me and I after the gig I go Bill what happened in uh, Lollipop Mama or you know, must have been Jelly or whatever one of these songs <laughs> how come you cut me off man he goes Man, you played that same idea last night. I don't want to hear the same stuff over and over again. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that would make other guys quit. Yeah. But I was so young that I just go, oh, okay, I guess I better step it up and practice harder. So it was a good learning experience. It was kind of like, yeah, I mean, if you have a really hard boss, that can be a, a, an abusive thing and a really good learning thing mm -hmm. at the same time uh, I mean he never hit me or anything no, like no, that no. but it was it was it was bordering on the inappropriate uh, mental you know, abuse way to treat somebody right and then the first time I saw you was was Rod Piazza oh yeah so you have um, obviously whatever you, you you gain from the, the experience you gain from playing with William Clark made you more compatible with harmonica plays. Is that correct? Definitely. I mean, I, when I was with William Clark, I got the Little Walter, Jimmy Rogers, Muddy Waters, Sonny Boy, all of that stuff on cassettes, and I'd have a Walkman, and I, 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 I wanted to be the best at backing up harmonica. You know, now, Junior Watson is still alive. Little Charlie is still alive. There's some guys that are really good at it, but I was real young, and I thought, man, I want to, I, I mean, underneath those guys, I want to be one of those guys. And I loved it. I love Little Walter. To this day, I love listening to that stuff. So I learned all the ins and outs of how to back a harmonica. And after I got done playing with Bill, I got a part-time job selling running shoes. And um, You're a runner as well, right? Yeah. <clears throat> I didn't want to work in a, in a guitar store or anything like that. I just wanted to do something. 30, 30, 35 hours a week, something to bring in some money while I wasn't on the road. And I turned down a few gigs, touring gigs, uh, because I knew I had a good idea. Either I was having fun playing with Johnny Dyer, and I was playing with Janova Magnus and San Pedro Slim and Linwood Slim and Harmon from time to time. And I was, it was great, a great time for me because I was at home, I was working during the day, it was a job that I could actually bring my guitar to, and nobody was in the shop I could practice. <laughs> right. My boss didn't mind. 
and, and you got shoes and i got running <laughs> shoes i had a discount not for free uh and but i played with i backed up everybody that came through town there was this one promoter named randy chortkoff that recently passed away had the delta groove label mm -hmm. and he was constantly bringing billy boy arnold or snooki Pryor or big daddy kinsey or you name it into town for gigs and i was in the band that got to back him up and and even recorded with billy boy too wow so that that happened right around the time started getting more serious with johnny and i put together a, a win in the studio with johnny to get a to make a cassette to get gigs with and i gave it to rod piazza <clears throat> who i'd started to have a you know friendship with rod says man you got to send this to Hammond at Blacktop. So I sent it to Alligator and Blind Pig and Blacktop. And I think it was about five days after I sent it to Hammond, I got a call Monday morning from him, like eight in the morning. I'm like, what? <laughs> hey, this Rick Holmstrom, this Hammond Scott, yeah? I want to sign you all. And, and I want to put your name on the front of the record too. Like he, he had this idea right away. It was going to be Johnny Dyer featuring Rick. L.A. Holmes Holmstrom, like kind of like the thing he did with Sam Myers and Anson right. Funderburg, only instead of Anson and Sam, it was going to be Johnny right. up in big names, wow. big letters, which is, man, it was fantastic. And so spent a few years with Johnny, made a couple records with him, toured, booked the band myself, just sitting there at the edge of my bed developed back and neck problems because my neck was <laughs> twisted at an angle trying to get gigs for us that's uh, when phones had actually cords exactly and stuff. yeah <laughs> you stick this phone and you you, you you twist your neck until it stays there yeah, and you're looking you at your paper. with iphones <laughs> <laughs> yeah no headset no hands-free wow so that was great fun with johnny and um and um you know but i was filling in for rod uh, alex schultz was in the mighty flyers at the time and so alex would leave for a weekend here and there and i would take his place and when alex decided to leave rod asked me to join and you know i just john i talked to johnny i remember going to johnny's house and starting to tear up and everything you know johnny i you know because Johnny Johnny had been driving a truck for 30 years, 35 years before we started playing together. And it was about time for him to retire. And all of a sudden, he's got a little music career, and which was great, great yeah. fun. He was really excited. We got a little record deal. We put a band together, and we went out on the road. And it was a ball for a while until he realized how much work it was, you know, that sitting with a it was just like driving a truck again yeah. although he wasn't driving but so the last year or so of touring with johnny i could sort of see that it was wearing him out and he was happier just playing at the corner bar and being home and i really just wanted to be out there pounding it you know touring and so when the rod gig came along i just johnny just said you got to do this are you kidding you know this is going to be great for your career and, and it was and so. then you put out a solo album or a few solo albums but the one i'm most familiar with would be hydraulic groove yeah which was not blues not harmonica well right. it was blues but it was 
a different twist on it. Well, the first one was Look Out. That was all instrumentals. And the reason why that one even came out was that I had done two or three, three instrumentals on each of the Johnny Dyer records. And when I called Hammond Scott at Blacktop Records to tell him I was leaving Johnny and going with Rod, and Rod had just left Blacktop to go to Tone Cool, <clears throat> so it was a little, I was a little worried about it. He said, oh, that's okay, I understand. One of these days I'm gonna make a record on you. I said, really? Yeah, why don't we just put those instrumentals that you did and put some more on it? And that's how Look Out came out. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it wasn't my idea, it was record label. Um, but then, you know, then I did a, a record called Gonna Get Wild after that. It was my first one singing. And then uh, Hydraulic Groove was in 2002. And then that's when I left Piazza to go and tour on my own on that. And what was that experience like? It was, uh, it was great, and it was time for me to go. I had right. spent seven years in the, with Rod, and great years. We were really good friends. He, he taught me how to surf. You know, he's a surfer, and I didn't know anything about surfing. So I used to drive down to San Onofre, which is about an hour and a half south of me, to surf with him during the day. So really fun. I learned a lot about the music. I got a lot of confidence playing with the Flyers because we were playing on big stages. We were, you know, we were headlining or we were just underneath the buddy guys and right. stuff. John Lee Hooker and all those people. Um, but when I, I had done a record with R.L. Burnside, my band was on this record called Wish I Was in Heaven Sitting Down, where they basically just had us go in and play different grooves. They were just, can you play something like Tramp by Lowell Folsom? Or let's listen to Slim Harpo. Let's play a Slim Harpo groove. Hmm. And we just played all these things without RL. And then they t stuck the stuff and, you know, looped it and cut and pasted it up. And then they brought it to RL and he sang over it. And I thought, man, that was kind of interesting. It was really pretty cool. I found out later that Jimmy Vaughn was a big fan of a couple of the songs. He, when I met him, he's like, did you play on that Slim Harpo thing? That's badass. And that just made my... You know, we got, wow. I, I got to be friends with Jimmy because of that, and it was a big thrill for me because he was somebody that I really looked up to when I first started playing. Sure. Because he played so simple and he played so rhythmic, mm -hmm. and I I couldn't relate to his brother, who was amazing. Yeah. But it was like, forget it. I'm not that guy. But maybe I can be the guy who plays the rhythm in the band, and. But hydraulic groove was sort of my take on the thing we had done with RL. So with RL it was loops and beats mixed with uh, hill country, you know, Mississippi hill country blues. Right. My thing was loops and beats mixed with West Coast jump and traditional sort of 50s style blues. And people either hated it or they loved it. I mean, it, it, it sold way more than any other record that I had done. And um, it got me into gigs I, there's no way I would have done. Like I was opening for Los Lobos and, and Robert Cray and... Um, so it was a successful album. Like it's a great album, I love that album. Thank you. I, I, in hindsight, I'm really proud of about 
a third to a half of it, there's a part of it that's like, man, why didn't I just write a better song like that? I mean, that was really interesting what we did to that thing, but some of it was like, what? What was I? But I think, I mean, I don't know you well, but we've, we've run into each other a number of times, and I think you, what I've learned is you have a very high standard of music, and I would, after a Mavis gig, I would be blown away, and I would say, Rick, what is, was, was that like a 9 out of 10? <laughs> and you'd go, eh, it was about a 5. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty. I'm my own worst <laughs> critic. I'm the one person in the room that's that's the. I mean, I'm happy after a gig. You know, I'm not going to get on anybody about it. I'm the band leader, but I'm. It, we are all making mistakes. The mistakes don't really bother me. It's just whether or not it was really it had that thing. You know, that See, magic. But, I mean, I've seen you a few times with Mavis. Unfortunately, I've never seen you with your band alone, mm -hmm. but with Mavis, and I've seen you just tear the place apart. Oh, thanks. And, and, but you never seem to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you're not unhappy, but it's never, like, I think once you said, oh, you should have been at that gig, it was like a 10 out of 10, and that yeah. was like two days before, and, yeah, and I yeah. can't even imagine what that was like, because the gig I was at, which was great, you said it was like a seven or something. Yeah, I mean, what you, you strive for, for that magic and those moments, and... and when they don't happen it's there's a lot of stuff that leads up to it during the day like you know tra traveling from cape cod massachusetts up here yeah uh, at least we're not playing tonight so it's kind of an easy day that we night that we get to rest but there's a lot of days on the road where you're driving overnight to get to somewhere and you there's a sound check and then there's there's an interview and then there's a uh, you know some dealing with merchandise and there's blah 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 working on the set list dealing with the band and then the gig and after all of that if it's not good it's just it has this feeling when you go back to the room of like, oh that was a lot of work for not a good one tonight doggone it but like, if your audience like myself is sitting there going that was amazing oh yeah i guess most of the people i go to see people all the time play and uh, same thing oh god that was man what a night that was great oh I hear it too. So, it's just you know, just you, you, if you're if you're not like that, then if you're just easily satisfied, then I mean, that's I true. don't go back and drink myself to into a you know slumber yeah. or anything, but you know, I just want it to be good. So the first time I saw you with Mavis was at the Blues Music Awards, or maybe it was the Handy Awards back then. Oh man, do all things. Yeah, you were at that. Yeah, that's right. Which was amazing and uh, I keep telling you that I think that's Mavis's best album but uh, nobody else will agree with me she doesn't even play that stuff anymore uh, <laughs> but that was at a point and we we talked soon after that and it was still a new gig for you now probably five six years later maybe it's more well we're, we're working we've been with her eight now. eight years okay yeah. so like was the Blues Music Awards one of the first gigs you did with her? That was the first gig I did with her. It was just the just the two of us and her manager. See, her manager, this guy Dave Bartlett, used to work at Tone okay. <coughs> Tone Cool Records. It's another thing with all this flying. You start to lose your voice, but um, and uh, he when he got out of working at the label, he went into management, and his first client was Mavis Staples which is amazing but she didn't have much going on at the time yeah. and um, 
he he kept telling me, oh man, I, I'm not crazy about her band at the t that, that she had at the time. I think you'd make a good uh, you know combination with her, uh, band leader, guitar player type of thing. And I said, man, I'm a huge Staple Singers fan. I would love to do that. And so he had me go watch her at a festival in Southern California at one point with her old band, and then he hired me to play that BMA thing, the Handies. And so we did I'll Take You There, just the two of us, and we did this one song that had a million changes in it that I... From that album. That I Yeah, that I spent hours learning this thing to, to play it just as a duo, which was very tough. And not only that, but the guy who played guitar on the record was sitting out there in the audience watching. It was some kind of weird confluence of <laughs> weird twist of fate, I guess. Who was super guy, sweet guy, Jim Weeder. He was sitting next to me at the table for the whole music thing. And I, I, I turned to him when it was time to play. I said, Jim, this is weird. I don't know. I'll just get up there and do it, man. You'll be fine. <laughs> and you were fine. It was fine. And, and, and so we hit it off. And then, uh, and then Dave, her manager, had my band open for her at the, on the Santa Monica Pier. Have I told you that story no. before? Oh, man, that's the real story behind the Mavis gig. So we're up there playing. There's, it's a free Sunday night, I mean, Thursday night concert series during the summer. Thousands of people, you know, eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000 people on the pier. And uh, <laughs> so I'm playing my... I don't know, 45 or 60 minutes set, and I'm about to get done. I look over to my right and see the promoter signaling me to keep playing. What the, what's going on? So we keep playing a couple more songs. I look at him and he's, I'm thinking, these people, they don't want to see me play. They've came, come here to hear I'll Take You There and Respect Yourself yeah. in these songs, you know. Finally, I look over and thankful he's like, okay, fine. So I get off the stage Mavis's band is late. They're not here. They're stuck at LAX. They flew in the day of the gig. Okay. Oof. From Chicago. So they bring us back stage and start talking to Mavis. And can you back her? Can you, can you do it until they get here? So we're trying to figure out what songs we can do. <laughs> Mavis, do you do any blues? No, I don't sing the blues. I'm thinking, baloney, you don't. But, you know, she yeah. doesn't consider herself a, a blues artist but she's got blues in her. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we figured out a few songs to do. We did three or four songs with her before her guys showed up, and we literally just handed them our chords and sticks and everything. But while we were playing, this guy off to my right, like the steps leading up to the stage, was pointing at me and yelling, he had these big glasses, colorful yellow glasses or something, and he kind of had one eye that was kind of looking a little off to the side looking at this guy he's going hey rick yeah man yeah that's it man that's the shit and i'm looking at what i don't know who is this weird guy thought he was a friend of the promoter or something so when we got done her guys showed up and i walked down the steps the guy taps me on the shoulder it's rye cooter wow i didn't know i mean i didn't know what he looked like these days you know he i'd only seen pictures of him from 20 years ago something 30 years ago with a wonky eye yeah, I, I mean, I, and he had these really crazy glasses, and he was dressed pretty, pretty like kind of like him and David Lindley kind of go to right. the same 
<laughs> I shouldn't say that, but <laughs> in know, a good way. Yeah, I mean it's fun. They're colorful and fun characters for sure. And wow, man, Ry Cooter. So he was working on a record with Mavis. That's why Mavis was in town, but her band wasn't. Hmm. That's why Ry was there. And he flipped out. He was he loved the way we played with her, even though we didn't know the songs. I was faking my way through these things. And apparently he was talking about us in the studio th the next few days. Huh? I really like that band that backed you that isn't even your band. So that happened, and then they had me back Mavis on the, uh, the Image Awards, the NAACP Awards. And so it was Mavis, myself, a percussionist, and two or three background singers on TV playing this song. No bass player, no, not a full drum kit. Another thing where it was at the Shrine Auditorium in Hollywood, L.A. And I sat in my dressing room and I practiced that one song from the time I got there until the time we played. And Bill Cosby was sitting right in front of me. <laughs> you know, it was like this strange, like... Uh, I think I was the only... Well, me, Bono was, was the... Strangely enough, Bono was the keynote speaker you know, somehow tying in the legacy of, of Dr. King with his the song that they did about Dr. King. And, and then here I was playing with Mavis. It was a heavy moment, but it went really well. So she said, come with me. And so she's talking to Cosby and, and hanging out and saying hi to all these people. And I'm just sort of a fly on the wall watching this, you know, and I've got my guitar case and my, what, why does she, she's fine. She looks up and she goes, all right, Montana. She calls everybody Montana if she doesn't know your name. It's like, <laughs> okay, Montana, you ready to make some racket this year? Yeah. Okay, get your band. Let's do this. And that was it. Wow. So that's how it started. I presume that experience, I mean, I presume that has changed your life. Am I correct to assume that? Oh, yeah. Can you talk about how it's changed your life? Well, I mean, first you got the, I mean, I had, I had Staples, early Staples singers, stuff on a cassette that I used to listen to in my car driving home after gigs. Two, three in the morning, I'm driving two hours from San Diego or somewhere to LA, listening to the staple singers. Just, that's so atmospheric and deep and heavy and cool and, and it doesn't, it transcends uh, genres and boundaries. Mm -hmm. you know, it's gospel music, but it's blues as heavy as it can get. And it's rock because it's, like the Rolling Stones stole some of their stuff from, you know, the, this will be the last time that came mm. from the staple singers. Uh, John Fogarty stole the, a lot of Pops's guitar figures and tremolo guitar. Lots of people ripped off this. I mean, it's not, I don't consider it robbery, but it's just being yeah. influenced. Influence, yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden I'm playing with her. I'm in a room with her. I'm, I'm her band leader. She's calling me on the phone after gigs in the hotel to talk about how the gig went and she's singing in my ear you know just funny stuff or or uh yeah i mean it changed all of our lives big time the band it changed my family my wife and then my kids uh, to you know they they got a new grandmother and then the stuff you go through in the music business at a whole different level all of a sudden, you know, you go from, you know, blues and roots music and 
and all of a sudden you're you're playing on TV. Our first gig was the Tonight Show. I mean, we were supposed to have a couple of warm-up gigs with her, but she got so into the rehearsals, she had a little cold when she came in. She sang herself mm-hmm. hoarse, and so we had to cancel a gig at my hometown. My my gig, my this gig that I played in Hermosa Beach at the Cafe Boogaloo. It was supposed to be this. Um, it was my band, and then with a special guest, and the owner of the place was not supposed to tell anybody, but he started telling all his friends. And then when Mavis had to cancel, I bore the brunt of it. Yeah. He was pissed. And I said, St- I said, man, you weren't supposed to tell anybody. So, but anyway, so, and then another gig that we were supposed to fly into canceled. And so what's left? It's night show. <laughs> First gig. Um. I presume the gig went well. Oh, yeah, it went well, but we played the song too fast. We were too amped up. I mean, we played well, but I think if I was Ry Cooter and I was sitting at home watching these young guys play the record that he just made, he was probably, I mean, he's kind of a, he was happy when we played with him that day on the pier, but um, I can't, I don't know. It went, it went okay. It was, we, we had. Once again, five out of 10. Yeah, right. (laughs) I mean, we probably had a little bit of like a punk energy to us because, because we were so excited and and we really came from a, all of us came from a real heavy blues background. Yeah. But how could you not be excited? Yeah. So now eight years down the road, how has it changed your playing? That's a good question. Um, Well, trying to think of the best way to put this um i learned a lot about space uh i had been playing in a trio before mavis but playing so many nights just bass drums and guitar and then voices um really we, when we first see like maybe the first nine months to a year we were just bashing our way through the gig not knowing what to do we just playing everything too fast too loud whatever and then youtube comes along or or, or or at least i started paying attention to wow there's a there's five clips of us playing last night yeah. let's see how it sounds and so that the tape doesn't lie right. i mean you if you put your headphones on and you listen to it and you realize oh the tempos are crazy we're speeding this up or we're you know i'm so it made us play uh, more mature and realized that, you know, the, embrace the space became our mantra in the trio and let the microphones do the work. Like we used to just see each other right before we'd go on stage and go, remember, let the mics do the work. Don't get loud, just let the microphones carry it. It doesn't have to be all frantic because we're playing with a 70 year old singer. You know, she's 76 now. So don't push her to the point where she can't hear herself. Mm-hmm. You know. And then uh, I, I think it, would, it also changed us because then we, we started working with Jeff Tweedy. And so we got brought into this world of the band and Wilco and kind of Americana folk roots music being another side and blues being on one side of our background and then we could sort of start getting in more into the 
folky side of it and learning from that made, you know making that record with Jeff was I mean I, I I'm sitting there playing with and Jeff is Jeff Tweedy's playing acoustic guitar and he's playing these little things that are real common in folk music folk rock music and I, I and Jeff is showing me the changes to one of these songs and I'm how did you do that again and he just kind of laughs and I said Jeff I don't know these things I don't and he goes that's probably cool because because to, to him they might have been like a cliche thing yeah, to yeah. do in, in from from the G to the C you can do this but I didn't know it yet so I ended up having to learn it just to see okay does it fit can I use it those kind of things help your playing even if you don't use them just right. knowing that what they are and then the, I think the other big thing that helped or that's happened is that Jeff the bass player Jeff Termas and I have started singing on the Mavis gig in the last maybe five years we didn't sing at first and we had a few gigs where one of the background singers or maybe two of them couldn't make it a certain night and so can you sing this note and then it became okay in this song can you sing this note because that'll help free up the the real pro background singers that we have Vicky Randall and and Donnie Gerard and and Mavis's sister you know Yvonne uh sang with us for a lot of years she's mm -hmm. not on the road with us anymore but um I don't know those are some of the things I would think that really happen. So when you go home and yeah. still play, because you still play in your band and do gigs that way, Yeah, has that changed? Yeah, it has. It brought a lot of, I mean, we went from being kind of like a blues band that experimented with beats on Hydraulic Groove. And I mean, when Hydraulic Groove came out, I went on the road, I, I put together a whole different band and we played with loops and samples live right and it was i mean it just it was i don't think anybody was really doing it in the blues world at that time i don't know if anybody has since you know it was it was crazy it was career suicide basically you know but i figured hey what the heck i'm gonna go out there and do what the, what we did on the record so that lasted for a little while then i had we had a kid and the blues scene just sort of went yeah. Like it was right around the same time as that happened. And I kind of, that was about 2003 or so. I just, uh, I'm going to stay home with my infant daughter and take care of her while my wife is at work. But when we started playing with Mavis, all of this, um, I guess you would call it gospel and folk American music was brought into the trio, whereas before it had been like swing and Chicago blues and Memphis blues. Now you're throwing in soul and old folk songs and things like that. When we get together and do a trio gig, it, uh, it felt like I was 21 years old again. Like all of a sudden I had all this new stuff to, to learn. Yeah. I don't know if this is a silly question, but when you play with Mavis, you're obviously playing in, in top venues yeah. to a lot of people, if not huge festivals. Yeah. I mean, you get to do some really cool gigs. Yeah. When you play in your own band, I'm not sure if that's the case. No. 
Is that is that difficult to deal with? No, not. I mean, this summer I haven't even I haven't even done a gig in months because we're so busy with Mavis. I've turned down work at home just because when I come home, I'm home for three or four days. I was home for two days not long ago. Um, I don't want to do anything like that. I want to see my family. Uh, But no, I, I I have a regular gig that's my kind of like my bread and butter gig when I'm at home it's this little bar about 10 minute drive from me called the liquid kitty it's like a little vodka bar you know a little right. uh, what do you call those drinks martini bar? martini yeah, bar, yeah martinis and, <laughs> um, I love it I mean we, I, I love setting up a very minimal band and just playing and not having it be a big deal so when you play Bonnaroo or whatever, yeah. do you hate that or do you love that as much? It can be. It can go both ways. I mean, it's Bonnaroo. The first time we played Bonnaroo was amazing. We had Ornette Coleman on the stage uh-huh. after us, so that day was incredible. But it was really hot. Uh, Ornette Coleman fainted on stage later that day, right after we had left, watching hmm. him to go watch Wilco for the first time. So. Just this sea of people sweating and they're muddy and they've been there all day and they're just hyped to see Mavis. And so that can be great, especially if the sound is good. Typically a festival you get there and you have maybe 15, 20 minutes of a line check to do, which means you don't really get to test anything out. You just tap on it and okay, let's go. So like we played Glastonbury this year in um, England, that's their biggest festival. It was a nightmare sonically, mm. but it was fun crowd-wise. The best gig of the year so far, I mean, there's been a few, but there was this little festival at the base of a ski hill in, I think it's called Tarhee, Wyoming. And it started raining, and then it started hailing on these people. I'm thinking, and the, the hail is hitting the stage and kind of bouncing around us. I'm thinking, okay, this is over. We're done. Nope. The band was covered, so they, the, the, the promoter said, just keep going. And the people just started waving their hands, and they're letting the rain come on them. And it's just, oh, man. And Mavis and us, it, when the crowd is like that, and they're really singing hard and really with you, it's, that's what it's all about. If there's this big moat, like I think that was like that at Lollapalooza when we played in Chicago a big area where there's nobody allowed but a few photographers. Yeah. That That's tough. Then Mavis, you can tell. I, I can see her body language. She She's trying to get over that. Right. But she's she grew up singing in churches and with people right up on her saying, all right, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, I hear you. Sounds good. Yeah, you know. And I did. I, I, mean, I, I grew up playing a totally different thing, but I grew up in blues bars, so it was the same kind of thing. People were really listening, and you start to play something good on it, and people get into it. Yeah, this instant feedback. Yeah. So when I watch you play, and I and many years of watching you play with Mavis, it's just it's almost like, well, who else could they have possibly have gotten? And it's you know it's like yes, this makes total sense. Um. And I, I just feel like your your style lends itself to it. Is that did you feel that when you when you first came in, or like the 
pop staples well, was kind had, of an influence. I and, felt like it was a good fit. I felt like I had the background in, you know, in blues music to be able to relate to where pops was coming from. There's a, there's a bunch of other guys that could have done the gig great, but um, I was the one that lucked out and got the gig. So why not grow with it? You know, mm-hmm. I I got I was already into Steve Cropper and soul music, but I really have delved heavily into Curtis Mayfield and all kinds of soul guitar players since then. Just because I also play in a band called the Gimme Fives when I'm at home. It's a it's an instrumental band kind of along the lines of Booker T and the MGs and right. who I also played with Booker for a while. Um, I toured with him for about three weeks at one point when Mavis had a break and they needed somebody, which was a great experience. But this band, the Gimme Fives, we do instrumental soul music. And so we'll take a song like a Fleetwood Mac song or a Steve Winwood traffic song. Or I'm just a, a Cars song, all kinds of things. And we turn them into thing, things that sort of sound like maybe the MGs or the meters or, or wow. a, a band like that. So I've gotten really into trying to figure out that thing, that soul music thing, which is it's, it's fun, it's inspiring because it's, it takes the same sort of uh, excitement that I had when I was really into Jimmy Rogers and Robert Jr. Lockwood and Luther Tucker and Tiny Grimes and all these guys that played traditional blues or swing blues. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, I guess, uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but the thing, I was sort of prepared for the Mavis gig. I had a good base. If I had stayed right there, I, I would have been all right. But I think we, we all started bringing in other things into it, so like funkier elements and when you when you when I see you on stage and you being the musical director, I mean you own that stage with Mavis. Oh, I'm hoping that, you know that. I don't know if I asked you this when we first met, but you know I kind of wondered would that translate into you becoming not a or you getting a bigger following. I hope it has. I mean I'm sure people who see Mavis will uh, realize that that's a hell of a guitar player. Well, thanks. I I don't know if that honestly. I mean, I think the guy that has put out my last couple of records was hoping that. Yeah. But uh, I know people, it's a different world. People don't buy records very much, even like. But even come and see you, would they go? Oh, it's Rick. He plays with Mavis. It, it. I think the only way that we'll know that is when I'm done playing with Mavis. For, you know, which I hope doesn't happen soon. But you know, eventually. We're not going to be together forever, right. you know. Um, I'd like to play with her as long as she wants to tour and make music, and and I've told her that. Like I've said, like I really enjoy this. I love you, and I love your music. And as long as you want me, and as long as I'm involved in making the music that we play on stage, I'm there. Um, but when that's the, when I'm not doing that anymore then I'll hopefully have a new record ready to come out at some point and I'll get out there and try it. But it's a tough road to hoe. I mean, it's, it's, um, it takes a long time. I've already, you know, I already went through that for a few years. And I, so I know the feeling. I've mm-hmm. done it a few times with Johnny Dyer and then on my own 
But even the fact that Booker T would have hired you for three weeks, yeah. that wouldn't have happened if you weren't playing with Mavis. Right. Booker, we did some gigs with the MGs and um, before Duck passed away. And Booker, <laughs> we were playing I'll Take You There. And uh, I think it was a gig where Yvonne was sick. Maybe we didn't have background singers that night. I can't remember if it what. It was somewhere in Chicago. We're playing I'll Take You There. It's the end of the night. We played after the MGs. And out of the corner of my eye, I see somebody coming up on stage. And it's Booker with a microphone in his hand, kind of sauntering out on stage. <laughs> and I just, what? And he starts singing. I didn't even know he sang, but he, he has sang for, for years. And it was a great thing. But getting to talk to Steve and Duck and, and Booker was a big, big thrill for me and so I think when when Booker needed it was just I was just filling in for somebody I had a little break from from Mavis Booker had a new record I kind of helped him and his manager at the time piece together a new band for him live a live band and then the guy that I suggested that they call to play guitar one of the guitar players he was going to bring two out bailed at the last minute so they said well could you do it uh, I, okay, but man, it was a real quick uh, immersion in everything Booker T, like all the songs that he wow. wanted to do and his new record. But really fun because Neil Young's on the record and it, the drive-by truckers are the band. And so it was just real big power chords, which I'd never played before. <laughs> it was not cool in the music that I was playing to play big power chords. That was more like rock. And I remember getting to the, to the uh, rehearsal thinking, does he really want me to play? So I would kind of play it. He goes, no, give me that full big chord, Rick. I want to hear that big. He wanted to hear these big sheets of power chords, almost like uh, strings and horns together. And then he would play the melodies around it. So it was really, I learned a lot in three weeks. It's crazy. I mean, you talk about music and the different people you've worked with yeah. over over the years, and it's like each one has a different lesson, and it expands your musical horizon, and sure. it becomes a part of you. It's, it's you know, I. So my final question to you is: when you look back and and the amazing journey you've had in music, from that guy who was just bouncing the basketball, and <laughs> yeah, right. How do you summarize that? Oh, how, how do you summarize this amazing journey you've been? Well, I have been super lucky. I've worked super hard. Um, but I think the main thing, I remember my folks telling me, telling me, if you could try to do something that you love to do, it will never seem like work. And even on days where you play a gig and then you drive overnight to get there to a gig in time to p pull yourself out of a van and put some deodorant on real quick and change your shirt and go play another gig, and then do it again I've had those and um, sleeping on people's couches or things like that uh, it's always been fun I mean I can I can be driving I can have the shift overnight when the sun is coming up right in your eyes and that's the toughest time you've been up all night and you're, you're trying you trying not to nod off but all I have to do is I can remember getting this Ray Charles record I mean, it was a cassette. I bought it in a truck stop. All of a sudden, I realized I buy this 
Ray Charles cassette and realize, wow, he had a whole musical life before people really knew about him. He was into Nat King Cole and and uh, and people like that, and he sounded just like them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles Brown, and so I remember driving in the as the sun's coming up, putting this cassette tape of, and just getting electrified by music all over again. You know, it's that new discovery. I mean, yesterday I discovered this songwriter named Jason Isbell, who was in the Drive-By Truckers, which a band I didn't really know a whole lot about. Now he was, he was fired. He was a drunk. He was screwing up, so they fired him. He got himself clean, and he made this record called Southeastern, there's this great singer, songwriter, guitar player record. It just blew my mind. Like, where did this guy come from? I mean, he's really, really good. Like songs that are just, you, you, you're moved to tears when you hear some of these songs. They're so beautiful. So it's just, the thing, I guess the way I'm answering that question is, I was lucky to, to do something that I loved. And even though there's been times where it's really hard it's, I mean, I've done jobs like construction and all that kind of stuff, and I've seen those guys come in that are career construction workers that, that, that go from Oregon to Oklahoma to Washington State to Alaska following the jobs. My state was like that, you know, with the pipeline and all the right. construction. I, I worked with those guys. I saw that death in their eyes, and I, I can remember being... 17, 18, 19, 20 years old going, I gotta find something that I love, you know. So I, I did. You certainly did. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for this time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Show me